I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Well, good afternoon there, Mr. Coastal Country Club. How are you doing tonight? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing really well, and I'm so pumped. This is my favorite kind of conversation, the legal, philosophical, philosophical rather, <laughs> type of stuff. <laughs> and so um, really excited to have you on. And for those who may not know you, could you just introduce yourself and maybe a bit about your background and how you ended up on this corner of Twitter? Uh, yeah, so I I was on Twitter before this account. I probably had five or six accounts that got promptly banned for many years <laughs> And and then I toned it down slightly and I figured out how to slide past the algorithms and my account stayed and it kept growing. And then uh, and then it's at where it's at now. So I was one of the original OGs when before Bowtie Bull was Bowtie Bull. Mm -hmm. And when Quintus Curtius was still posting on Return of Kings and um, I was around for a while. So I'm sort of I'm basically a Twitter boomer at this point, I think. Very cool. And what was your day job before you left the brutal nine to five and went out on your own? Yeah. So when uh, I, I'm a lawyer, I think everyone on Twitter that has followed my account knows that I'm a lawyer. Before I was a lawyer, I was in commercial real estate brokerage. I went to law school part time and ran my deals uh, during the day, went to law school at night. And the idea was when I graduated law school, I could say to law firms, yeah, you're, there's other guys interviewing with you, but I'm a guy that already knows how to run deals. So you should hire me. And it ended up working out. And I pretty much do the same kind of work now, but as an attorney, I'm an attorney that mostly uh, runs real estate transactions and I handle everything involved in putting a shovel in the ground to financing a property, to trading the property, getting it leased up, uh, doing anything you can with real estate. And, and I love it. And I went through the tour of duty that you can do through all the big law firms, most recently at one of the top three largest firms in the world. And I left there just a few weeks ago to go out solo on my own, which I have been wanting to do for a long time and I finally pulled the trigger. And what was the instigator that made you finally go out on your own? There was no one thing that made me wanna go out on my own, but I would say it was primarily lifestyle based. I uh, I was working mostly from eight o'clock in the morning when I would wake up, which is kind of late to wake up at eight o'clock in the morning. And I would work until like one o'clock the next morning and then mm. come home. My family would already be asleep. I'd crawl into bed with my, you know, trying to tiptoe up the stairs, not wake the kids, not wake the wife, get into the bed and then wake up the next morning and torture myself the same way. And I wouldn't see anyone in my family really until... Saturday. And usually I'd work one of Saturday or Sunday and it just wasn't very sustainable. Um, but I knew I was learning a lot and getting the credentials that I needed and getting the experience that I needed. And I said to my wife and the rest of my family, this is just a, it's not the rest of my life. I just need to do it for now. And they were actually all on board with it. And they all wanted me to leave earlier than I did, but I felt like when I pulled the trigger, it was the right time. And I left on good terms with my firm and that's not always easy to do. Out of curiosity, is big law those hours? And that's the horror story that I've heard a thousand times from 
my friends, from people I know that are in that space. Is it throughout your career, no matter how senior you get, those are your hours? Yeah. And that's the thing. As, so I've made my way up through various big law firms. When I was at, for example, like a top 50 firm, the partners would have a good lifestyle. They would work regular hours for the most part. Sometimes they'd work a late night. They wouldn't work weekends. Um, but then as I progressed through the ranks, I was, I was chasing prestige, right? And as I mm-hmm. chased through the ranks and got higher and higher up, I'd look at these partners and I would know, yeah, they're bringing in many millions of dollars a year but I don't want to live their life. I don't like mm. the way they live. I don't think it's cool. I mean, yes, they have properties and they have all this and that, but maybe they get a day or two away. And while they're on vacation with their families, they're sending emails and paying mm-hmm. attention to all this stuff. And I just thought, one, that's not a very high quality of life, even though it's a lot of money. And two, they could be doing something else, probably more interesting. And and the third part of it, of the third part of the whole equation is it's not... Um, it's not transferable through generations. You, they can't, they can't give their law practice to their kids or their family. It's not mm. something that can pass on. Um, you know, you build a business, you can sell that business and make a ton of money. You build a law practice, and for the most part, you get a pat on the back, and you get a, a retirement luncheon, and that's it. And so, I, uh, I thought as a solo, I would have more opportunities to explore other business interests and build a law practice that was more focused on. Uh, serving people that were similar to me, which is people that are trying to run deals that are sub-institutional level, but that are really aggressive. That's fascinating about um, the fact that you can't sell the law firm like you can another business. I had never considered that, but that's such a good point. And I completely relate to the piece about the most senior people are working some of the toughest hours. Like I know at my job, the partners are working the same hours as me, if not worse. They may have slightly more control over it when they log on and when they log off so they can hang out with their kids or something like that. Whereas I'm just on the beck and call of my manager. But I mean, the joke is you get to that level by winning the pie eating contest and your prize <laughs> is more pie. <laughs> so I've said that same really thing ends. all the time. Yeah, yeah. I've I used that same example to my uh, to my family who's no one in my no one in my family's ever gone so far through education or had such a such a job. And so they would look at me, you know, they've, they've all worked with their with their hands mostly or they've been. Um, you know, like more like simple jobs, like teachers. And they would look at the hours that I'm working. They said stuff like, why are you doing that? And I would tell them, I, it's, it's something I got to do. And, and they said, but all this work, what do you get at the end? And I said, well, you get, if you do the work, you get more work. And they, they just did You're absolutely right. They don't, people don't understand. It's, it's hard to explain. Yeah. Um, I'm already planning my escape. Hence, Good for you. The anonymous personas. But um, I definitely have people in my life that are like, you can't keep doing this. Mine's not nearly as bad as big law, but it's definitely not normal. Um, And my boyfriend has made it very clear that I'm not doing this for many more years. And that's one of the things. There's a lot of women who run teams at my firm, but how do you work 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. every night with toddlers? And there are women who do that, but... yeah there are i just can't even fathom how you possibly do that um so i just know it's not my life path and i have to figure something else out but it honestly takes some stress off from the day to day like i'm not as worried about impressing people because i don't see myself here for more than a year or two 
I don't know. Yeah, it frees you up. It frees you up a little bit. I think yeah. it allows you. I think in some respects, it allows you to, uh, to like you know, as they say in boxing, to bite down on your mouth guard and just take the hits because you realize I'm not here forever. I'll just do what they need me to do for now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as you probably also know, it's it's not always you know it's not always till eleven or one o'clock mm-hmm. at night. But it's just the idea of, you know, they say, oh, let's go get dinner on Wednesday or Thursday. And maybe your boyfriend or, for example, my wife will make a reservation at eight o'clock or night trying to accommodate the schedule. And then still it'll be 845 and I'll be sending a text. Sorry, can't do it. Something came up and it feels horrible. It's damaging to the relationship, really, over time. Oh, a thousand percent. That's the one thing that gets um just gets to me is that it's unpredictable or you tell people in advance, like I have this one dinner reservation this month that I would love to keep at 8 p.m. on a Thursday. Nope. Like, can you make that happen for me? Something came up. The client needs something. Sorry. And there's yeah. nothing you can and do. T- and there's nothing you can do. And it's terrible. And on, on my honeymoon, and I didn't oh. go on some elaborate honeymoon. I went on a very simple honeymoon to Florida and it was only four days and I spent six hours of one day working on something. And I'll never uh, forget it. And I'll ne- never forget the client or forgive circumstances of the of the partners that put me in that position. It just wasn't right. Oh, my goodness. That's awful. I can't even imagine. My boyfriend would just have me quit. <laughs> that's always a solution to everything. He'd just say quit. Anytime I'm complaining, quit. <laughs> quit and move in. That's literally his response. So that's a good response. That's a that's a response that you like to hear. I'm glad that I'm glad that you're getting that. Some people don't get that response in your position, just so you know. Some people are getting told, well, you you have to do your part. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not in that position. <laughs> I also think that's why I'm less worried about it than other people too. Yeah, but Anyways, so you decided to go out on your own. Um, I'd like to hear more about like the day-to-day of you. I, you DM'd me transactional lawyering. So I'm going to use that term. Transactional yeah. lawyering for real estate deals. You know, what is the day-to-day of that? Are you negotiating between parties or are you just writing out the fine print for what they're agreeing to? If that makes sense. Yes, yeah, so it's both. It's it's everything that is required to get a deal done is within my, I perceive it as within my responsibility. So I'll sometimes guys like to negotiate their deals and they tell me what the terms are and I'll document it and they'll interface with the other side, keep me in the back. And that's okay. Uh, but sometimes guys who are really busy or guys who maybe don't have a ton of expertise will say, I want you to handle some of the some or all of the negotiation and mm. and I'll jump in and handle that, which is also totally fine. But that's uh, at its core what I what I'm doing. And I'm no I don't think I've ever been properly in court in nine years of practice. I've been in oh. land use hearings and I've been on Zoom pre-trial soft sort of conferences that really turn into settlement negotiations but i've never really properly been in court in a trial and i never want to be and i never wanted to be and and that when i say transactional lawyering it's i'm trying to uh to communicate that and people don't understand that because you say lawyer and people think oh lawyer you know you go to court you do those things and maybe you draft some contracts and i guess some people do but what i do is is quite specialized compared to that for a solo attorney a lot of solo attorneys are general practitioners who who do it all and i i like to tell people that i do one thing and i do it very well 
Hmm. Hmm. It's funny that you say um, most people consider lawyers in the courtroom. My initial thought was, I just think of lawyers. I think of hotshot. Like I think of the guy that's running the show. But um. Oh, that's oh, funny. Um, are you familiar with Bowtie Broke's account by any chance? Yeah, I am familiar with his account. His content is great. Yeah. So he, when I think real estate, I think of him. And so he's this fabulously rich, you know, real estate investor. Would he be a client of yours in the development of his land? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I have the right idea. Yeah. So yeah. how expensive of like a real estate purchase would warrant a dedicated lawyer to do this kind of contractual work? So, I mean, people who sometimes I say, and I stopped saying that I'm a real estate lawyer because people would say, oh, CC, I'm buying my house. You know, can you help me buy or sell my right. house? And I can, but I'm not competitive on that because guys, there's guys who do that and they call themselves real estate lawyers and they are, but they'll charge 500 or $750 to sell your house. Mm -hmm. And um, and they're just pr providing a different service and a different thing than what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I can't compete with that. My um, And just for comparison, my rate when I was at my last firm was, and it's not the highest rate in the world, but it was $985 an That's hour. That's pretty high. I would take that. Which it, I would take it yeah, right we, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is really high, and I was only getting, you know, what I ended up with in my pocket at the end of the day was a small, small fraction of that. Mm. But I um, use that, and probably other large firms, lower scale, they were billing me out around five hundred ish an hour, um, just for just for comparison purposes. You know, I, there's no way I can buy or sell someone's property for five hundred or seven hundred and fifty dollars an hour if I'm if I'm valuing my time at right. those rates and personally for my own business, by the way, I, I, I reduce it because my market is, and my target audience are, are really, um, are really younger, aggressive guys who want to get deals done and get their business off the ground mm -hmm. for the most part, um, who want responsiveness and professionalism, but aren't suited for a huge firm. And, and my rate and, and what I'm offering works for them. But the the rate thing is interesting. I spend a lot. Of, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And by the way, what I learned when I did the math is I could basically bill out at around one third of my rate and work one half of the hours and make around the same amount of money. Oh my goodness! As I was as I was at my prior firm, and it, it was just I looked at it and I just I kept running the numbers over and over, and I was like, no, it's right. That's true. That's how it will work out. Um, roughly, by the way, not exactly. Right. And and so it just seems so obvious that that was the right thing for me to do. That's wage slavery for you. I'm <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're exactly preaching right. the choir. Um, okay, yeah. so I'm fascinated by this. You said you know you're making nine hundred or so an hour, but you were only getting a small portion of that. So yeah. at a big law firm like that, are there different tiers of partners, and are they getting a bigger cut of the pie? Like if your name is on the building. Do you get a bigger percentage of all of the work? Is it tied to the clients that you bring in? Can you walk me through like the compensation structure? I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, it is really fascinating. And it's really, uh, it's really opaque and it's difficult to know about. And if you ask a lot of junior associates at law firms, they won't even know because, <laughs> because they're honestly, because they're afraid to ask is, is I think 
the yeah. reason why because you're there and you just feel lucky to have the job in general and you don't even want to you don't want to ask questions about how it all how the big pie gets split up because you want to focus on doing your job but at many firms and every firm runs a little different and they can run it however they want but at many firms they run a a closed book or an open book system but generally how it works at firms is there's a partnership tier where they're, they have equity in the law firm and they share in the profits like you would think of as regular equity. But the name partner has recently been dissociated from actual equity. So in some cases, firms will in name promote you to partner, but you don't actually have a share of anything and you're still on a on a flat salary like anyone else would be that's an employee even though you have the title partner hmm. and and that's been probably a way to concentrate the actual revenues within a tighter group of people while still dishing out the partnership title but it is frustrating to people who think that they're trying they they work all these years for partnership and they get the title partner and they realize nothing changed i'm still just getting a salary that they tell me i'm getting and then when you do get promoted to an equity partner, you realize that in some cases you're told by a compensation committee on an annual basis what your, what your shares in the company are based on their perceived value that you bring to the firm. And so even if you have a very big year or I guess a smaller year, you might only go up in their compensation allocation a few points each year because they want to not upset the ship with their existing partners mm. so you don't really ever know truly where you stand when you're a partner even if you have a share of all of the revenues you're told often by someone else what your partnership value is and again every firm is different but overall it's not a situation that you have a lot of control of right and and I don't think it's a situation that directly rewards people for great performance. And if you have a certain personality that I happen to have, you want to perform and be rewarded for performance on a pretty immediate basis. Not that I'm not patient, because I'm certainly patient, because I ran you know the associate game for many years. But mm -hmm. th thinking long term. It's it's tough. It was tough to see myself in that world forever. And I thought about the kind of person that sees myself in that world forever. And it's hard for me to understand that mindset. No, I completely understand that. Um, one thing I have learned about myself is that, especially with starting something on the side, is I'm totally fine working a 14-hour, 16-hour day. I just don't want to do it for somebody else because I'm not yeah. getting any of the benefit of it. So that's exactly right. That's my mindset. I'm totally fine with the hard work. One thing I uh, was watching, uh, there's a really great lecture series at the University of Virginia Law School, and they bring in um, speakers and they put it on YouTube. So I was watching like the whole series. And there was this one from a hotshot lawyer, no other way to describe him. And he said <laughs> that they bank the hours of the associates and you get a certain bonus if you're over 2000 hours or something like that. Yeah. And he said yeah. he most disliked the associates who put 2000 
and three hours to just get into the bonus bracket. He was like, oh, it just gives off such the wrong vibe or like, it just makes me not like that person when they really, they're probably four hours short, you know? And I just thought it was quite a fascinating conversation to be having. I don't know. How I feel. Yeah, I'm. You, we're not on video, but I'm rolling my eyes tremendously yeah. <laughs> because I'm not surprised at that. And it's not right. I mean, they tell you, and this is part of the culture thing. They tell you what the expectation is, and they tell you, well, this is then the bonus expectation, and you'll meet that expectation, and they'll still be unsatisfied because you didn't meet that expectation with flair in a way that right. satisfies them. With and it's gusto. just not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, um, I have a couple of friends that work at Goldman Sachs and there is a performance bonus for them, which is fascinating to think about how many hours they're working as an investment banker and what you have to do to get into the top tier performance bracket. And she said, nobody even tries to get into that top bracket because it's just so much pain <laughs> like, and it just, and you're making wow. so much money already as a 23 year old, like what is an extra five grand right now? Post-tax what is like right it's not worth it if there's no me reason to do it and so i don't know i just that kind of grind mindset is pretty crazy and if you go to one of these great law schools big law is kind of your only option am i right to say that if you graduate with four hundred thousand dollars in debt and you're good enough to get into big law how many people turn that down yeah, it's a good point. I don't know. I don't know how many people turn it down, but it is hard to justify turning it down when the compensation is quite good and the experience is valuable and carries with you for the rest of your life. And I know they have they have I think they have it for other industries too. this public service or public interest student loan yes, forgiveness. Yes. Or if it's 10 years, uh -huh. you can get it waived. But to to your point to rack up hundreds of thousands of debt to go and make i mean i think public like a public defender salary in some counties is like seventy thousand dollars or maybe 75 or maybe less than that to make that for 10 years it's just it's not it's not a realistic path so i, I don't know how many people choose that over big law when they actually have the options in front of them and, and it's a real choice to make but can't be many, right? Right. And I've also heard, I've gone down this rabbit hole. You can tell I thought about law school when I was 17 <laughs> and ambitious, that you basically need to go to one of the top, whatever, 10 schools, seven schools to really get a shot at these big law firms. So would you say there's a lot of people with law degrees that aren't making a ton of money and are in $400,000 of debt? Uh, yeah, I mean, I went to I went to a school that had a top. I don't want to dox myself, right. so I'll say I'll say a top ten part time program because that's what I was focused on doing a part time program, and I was focused on getting transactional real estate experience and running deals and graduating with that experience under my belt. But most of the students that I graduated with, the overwhelming friends that I had in law school, aren't practicing law anymore. And I, ca I can't even, I, I can't even find them anymore, actually. Like I'll look on LinkedIn and I, I don't even know where they are anymore. I don't know what they're doing. Um, so one of them is actually a TV news anchor. So I think, <laughs> I think she, I think, she, and I think she, we took the bar exam together and I'm pretty sure she failed it and she didn't care because 
because she knew she was she was doing this particular thing. I love the compensation thing. I don't know why. I just I find it yeah. really fascinating. <clears throat> it um, is interesting because it's not well known. It's not well yeah. understood. It's so buttoned up and you would never talk about it with like your friends or family because that's so impolite, but everybody wants to know. So. Well, you think that you think they want to know, but they're you talk about it for 10 seconds and their eyes gloss. They're actually yeah. not interested. I think I'm interested in like the incentive part of it because the company wants to harvest as much value from you as possible while you want to do mm -hmm. the least amount of work as mm -hmm. possible to earn that wage. And so yeah. how you design the incentives from a company standpoint, I find it pretty interesting how they're trying to give us the little carrots, the cheese as the rats. Um, but one thing I really wanted to talk about and switching gears a little bit is Steven Crowder. So <laughs> okay. Steven Crowder has been very upset that his wife is divorcing him. And one of his gripes with the great state of Texas is that it has no fault divorce. And so my first question is, what is meant by no fault divorce? I think I know, but want a lawyer's opinion. Hmm. What is no fault divorce? Hmm. And what is your opinion hmm. on it? Sure. So I'll tell you what I know about it caveated by the fact that this is not what I practice and this is basically a bar exam level knowledge That's or less than that since it's been so many years since I took a bar exam. But at one point, the divorce law in this country was all fault divorce and you had to establish a reason for the divorce, whether it was they're cheating on me, they've abandoned me, or they've, they're unable to like they tricked me that they like could get pregnant or have intercourse and they can't or like some other like horrible thing like they like beat me every day like you had to that was that was kind of that was the rule and then i think i actually honestly think it was um i think it was california under ronald reagan that signed the first no fault divorce law that allowed couples to get divorced without a stated reason and there's variations of that like some states have this uh waiting period where you have to be separated for a year and others others don't have it but <clears throat> essentially the difference between fault and no fault is you used to have to prove affirmatively if you want to get get a divorce that one of these categories of bad things were happening like they were cheating on me or abandoned me or are hurting me something like that or mm -hmm. no fault is you don't have to prove anything other than you want a divorce and i didn't follow and i'm not so up to speed on steven crowder's particular complaint but to me it doesn't seem like such a bad change mm -hmm. to to be honest because because i think it's a it's it's kind of unnecessary to have to prove to a court of law why you still need to be married yeah is uh <clears throat> is how I personally feel about it. Yeah, I I totally understand that. And also, if you're not following it, you don't know that there's this video of him like <laughs> verbally berating her on a ring camera. I, like, is that where he's sitting on? Yes, like the cat the couch on their patio. Yeah, and she's eight yeah. months pregnant, and he's telling. Yeah, her I felt she really bad for him. Car. <laughs> yeah, I felt <clears throat> one. I felt really bad 
in general for the situation. I felt embarrassed for him. I mean, he needs to get another car, right? Like he just needs to buy a second car is what <laughs> needs to happen. He has this nice house. He has a pool, a patio. It's like covered. They have new furniture out there. Rent a little sedan, get something. <laughs> Poor guy doesn't have two cars and stuff out there. Gas is expensive, yeah. but um, <laughs> I just find it interesting. So I think even if there was only fault divorce in Texas, a good lawyer could make the argument that there was abuse happening with a video of him screaming at her, right? Like if you have a good lawyer, can't they prove fault? You can certainly make attempts to prove fault and a good lawyer would be using that and I'm sure a variety of other things that they would be able to find and pull to prove that. One of the problems with the fault divorce is that there was a bunch of defenses to it. Like you could say, oh, well, they agreed to it or they would also abuse me or mm. they would provoke me to do these certain things or that they were okay with it and it was part of our regular relationship. And so it became, the court was getting so involved in these personal disputes and I, I, again, I, I don't have a lot of research into it, but I imagine that the courts just decided they don't really want to get involved. They have real cases and real law to deal with. And if people don't want to be married anymore, uh, let's let them not be married anymore. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not like the meme of the eternal libertarian, but uh, I just don't really feel like it's the place of the court to be determining whether people need to still be married or not. Probably. Right. And then some people are going to use this as an excuse from a rich, high value man's perspective of why he should never get married oh, because there's no fault divorce. She can run away with the pool boy, you know, <laughs> so I right. understand the gripe that you have no protection as a man from a woman leaving you. But also a woman has no protection the other way. You have a prenup. Are you pro prenup? Um, I'll say for myself, I, 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 I'm not against prenups. I don't personally have one because it wasn't applicable to my circumstances because when I got married, I had less than no money and my wife, I mean, my, my wife and I have, we've actually been best friends since we were in ninth grade together. So Aww. yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and, um, we it just wasn't really applicable to our circumstances i had less than no money and i was counting on her to do things and she was counting on me to do things and it just it wasn't a part of our relationship but i have some clients where <clears throat> where it definitely is something that they need and it's really part of their business planning because it's part of their business planning because they need to be sure that when they're raising money with other people, that they're not risking that business with the marriage. Mm -hmm. So for a real estate deal like that, if someone is like on a board, like a, I don't know, some entity owns this real estate and there's a board and I, I don't know if this is a real situation. The man dies. Does the wife inherit the board? Like, does she now have voting rights that affect the rest of the entity? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And that's part of the reason why it's important and necessary for some people to have one. And some states that are community property states, it is the default rule that the wife has rights to assets that are acquired during the marriage. And so it can be it can be feasible that the wife would have the rights that the husband had in the company if the wife would survive the husband's death. And people want to make sure that that's not the case because they're not going into business with the wife. They're going into business with right. the husband and his judgment and everything that he has. And so it's kind of necessary that they have some sort of agreement that protects that right. And you can do that in those agreements specifically for that company. And you can also do that to some extent in those prenup agreements. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a tremendous expert in that and I don't practice that law, but that's the advice that I give my clients when they bring these issues up. And then I find a prenup expert and we, we put the necessary documentation together on that. <laughs> interesting. So one, what th would, one yeah. thing that's interesting on prenups that a lot of people don't know is that you can't, you can negotiate all kinds of deals. It has to be a reasonable deal. Of course you can negotiate a lot, not almost anything, but you can negotiate anything that's within bounds, but you can't negotiate child support in mm. advance because the law doesn't want you to negotiate away the rights of children, which I think is kind of interesting before they exist. And so the child support is completely determined by the income, like at the time of divorce. You can't hold me to that, but my understanding Vaguely. is that that's the, is that would be the case is that the child support is based on the circumstances at the time. Not you can't renegotiate that, but someone who practices in that would be able to give a precise answer. Interesting stuff. I, again, I'm not going to have a prenup because I also have less than no money. So it's not <laughs> a, it's, I just find it fascinating that people are so invested and it makes sense. Like if you inherit land from your family, that's like a farm or a mansion, then yeah, maybe you need to protect that because it's your ancestral wealth. But other yeah. than that, I think we're splitting hairs here. Like, who's going to get the minivan? We're all like millennials and Gen Z. We don't have any money to worry about at the moment. So I think it's pretty That's... funny when people are arguing about it on Twitter. Like, what it are you protecting? <laughs> yeah, and you see that advice all the time. Like, never get married until you have the prenup in place. It's like, you don't, it doesn't make sense. But it just doesn't make sense sometimes. Like, I, you know, I, was, bas I was basically living at home making not enough money going to law school and dating someone who was like my best friend since forever. Like we even went to junior prom together. I'm not after 15 years handing her a prenup agreement. Like it doesn't like, it just doesn't work. And you know, we weren't like fully grown adults with lives and everything going on with right. family wealth to protect. Yeah. There's a lot of funny things you see on the internet these days. <laughs> that kind yeah. Of thing. I make a lot of videos in that space, so I see it all the time, and it just cracks me up. But Your videos are well appreciated. Oh, thank you so much. But um, one of your quotes that I'd love to get your take on live is, oh, no. whether or not women should be punished for crimes is one of the great philosophical questions of our time. 
<laughs> do you think women should be punished for crimes? Well, why of course I not? do. <laughs> <laughs> of course I do. This was, I mean, this was in, co- was in the context of one particular circumstance of Elizabeth Holmes, who, <laughs> and I, I, I don't have any unique affinity for Elizabeth Holmes, but it was in, I think she, she was held guilty and she has some sort of civil penalty and she has to pay money back, I guess, to the people she defrauded. But I guess she now is going, I, I don't, I wasn't following it so closely. I guess she now is getting sentenced to some sort of prison time. And someone made the comment of like, well, yeah, this will do society a lot of good, like removing like a, ch- like a mother from her child, like, like because she tricked people into investing money with her, like good job, everyone. And I kind of agree with that in, in some sense. Mm. Um, and I, I was sort of doing that to be funny, but I kind of meant it a little bit true, which is I, I don't know that jail is, is, is making anybody whole. I mean, everyone invested with her. I guess she, I mean, she obviously broke the laws, but, um, you know, doctors say, and I've learned this from watching House MD in like 2008, <laughs> like if you pick anyone off the street and like run every test on them, you'll find like six to seven things wrong with them. If you pulled anyone off the street and like ran them down for laws and everything that they were doing, you'll probably find like like more than six to seven laws that they were breaking or crimes that they're committing at any one time. So like, I don't necessarily feel some sort of moral superiority when any person gets convicted accused or convicted of any crime unless they're like obviously horrifying or terrible ones because I, I i think that the overall the regulations in our world have gotten impossible to understand for the normal person and no one is doing everything correctly and obviously she was pushing the limits but um you know i said that mostly for content and for fun and uh and to get some engagement which it did get um, but there's a, like every other good piece of art and entertainment, there's a little bit of truth to it. I completely relate to that, but I would never stoop to such lows to engagement hack as such as this, God forbid, but, <laughs> um, no, I completely relate. And I think it's a fair point. And also just, I find it ironic in a lot of scenarios where, there is such a cancel culture where you can find any dirt on anyone 10 years ago and ruin their life with it today. That's not applicable to Elizabeth Holmes. But then also you give your favorites and your celebrities a pass at times. Um, it's just it's just not a fairly applied standard, which I think is a fair estimate of our entire society. And the other thing that you mentioned was yeah. that there's so much red tape. There's so many things that you can do wrong and not even understand that it's illegal. You have to get a permit for this. I think the tax code is so convoluted to get jobs for accountants. So why, when, how did you notice the bureaucracy becoming such a problem and so many of these kind of red tape type things to exist? Was it your entire life? Or did you notice it increasing recently? Yeah, it wasn't my entire life. I was actually at one point like an extremely optimistic young 20-year-old man. And I thought that I was was, like many 
young people. I thought politics were interesting and that other things were interesting. And as soon as I, it was really after I graduated law school and I started doing land use approvals work and I would go through the entire process to get entitlements for land development. And I realized how overcomplicated the systems are I mean, when you're getting the zoning approvals and then planning approvals and you're getting environmental approvals and the environmental approvals include stormwater discharge and they include research on whether there's endangered species nearby mm-hmm. they include all sorts of mitigation efforts and then you have members of the public who appear at hearings and make their statements and the board takes their comments into account and as their comments into the final resolutions of approval that you have to meet in order to continue with your project. And I, 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 when I experienced it firsthand, I just simply couldn't believe the amount of obstruction in proceeding with something as simple as subdividing a single lot into two lots mm. to, to build two houses something as simple as that can take in some places like Princeton, New Jersey, two and a half years or three years. Mm. Um, and you can, by the way, go through all of that and then find out at the very end of it that you're not going to be able to do what you wanted to do because the approvals that you were told would be okay and that you could get someone on the board had a change of heart <laughs> and a neighbor talked to them and now they no longer feel that way. So they're voting against you. And it's, uh, it's a difficult situation because even if a lot of times these boards are legally wrong, and this is difficult for people to, I mean, everyone can understand it in concept, but to understand it in real life when there's money in hand, even though these boards are legally wrong, to enforce your rights is an even longer and more expensive process because mm-hmm. then you need to initiate a lawsuit against the municipality or the county or whatever it might be, or the, or the state uh, department of environmental protection. And that's again, potentially several years and, and extremely expensive. And so when I started doing my work as a lawyer and started practicing and realizing what people have to go through to get projects approved, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that I got black pilled on it, but I basically got black pilled on, the system that we have for um, for development and and everything else in general, obviously, but that's my that's been my direct experience with it, and that's what I know the most about, and I see how dysfunctional that system is. And in some respects, it keeps real estate um, difficult to access because not a lot of people have the knowledge or uh, patience or want to deal with that. Which you know, barrier to entry can be good for the existing participants, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. in some respect, there's some inertia that protects the system, but it's not a good system overall. And I and I hear some things sometimes. You know, you'll hear AOC or other people talk about um, creating affordable housing. If you look at how affordable housing is applied on a state level and then enforced at the local level, it's chaos and it makes almost no sense. Mm-hmm. And then you hear further calls now about 
deregulation of zoning codes to allow for more affordable housing. And you look and you look at certain states like states like Pennsylvania and New Jersey, where land use planning is done at the individual township level and not at the county level, you think that this is impo- maybe an impossible problem to solve because how could regulations at a high level drip down to these individual townships? In some cases, they're very small. They have uh, maybe tens of thousands of people in this township that run this township and administer this code. Um it's just, it's just such a complicated, uh, difficult, old-fashioned world. That's sort of what I like about it. But sort of what makes it sticky. Um, so it makes it difficult to navigate. So it makes existing players and old-time relationships still valuable, which you know that that doesn't exist in tech or other businesses really. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. a. It was, and still is, an extremely frustrating example of what regulation does to business. I have about six questions. I wrote them down, but we'll go one by one from all of that insightful stuff. So my first comment sure. is I was reading Cokeland about the Koch brothers and in it, they described like the 1970 clean air act in which they said they were, it was purported to you know, eliminate some pollution by saying new oil refineries need to have all these bells and whistles to make them super clean and designed for the future. Only oil refineries that allow these that have these things are allowed to operate. And so what the oil refineries in 1970 did is they got a bunch of lawyers and they argue what these words mean. And now no oil refineries have been built since 1970 because they added a bunch of bells and whistles and nobody can come in and build a new refinery with those bells and whistles. Um, anyways, that is to say- I'm shaking I'm shaking my head as you explain this. <laughs> Something like that. And so now no new oil refineries have been built. There's like a monopoly on it and the Koch brothers benefited. So there's just things like that where like the government's not good at things. And that's just, they don't, they're not incentivized to be good at things. I'm really interested in the topic of affordable housing. Um, it's obviously a huge issue because of the- homeless crisis, number one, but also just that rents are rising, inflation is causing so much uh, of the cost of living to go up. So you talked about the zoning laws. Are zoning laws responsible for why San Francisco, for instance, is incredibly expensive? Wow, that's a great question. And I th- I'd, <clears throat> I'm i not a California guy. I was based in New Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania primarily. And now um, my core of expertise is expanding into the South. I do do deals all over the country, but I I wouldn't call myself a California expert. I don't know why in particular San Francisco is so expensive, but I will say I've been to San Francisco and I do not see the value that other people seem to see in San Francisco. Um, And I, I, yeah, I guess that's all I can say about San Francisco. Yeah, I, I've been there too. It's not everything it's cracked up to be, to say the least. But I think part of it is just the fact that they struggle to build apartments because they're zoned for single family homes and that takes up too much space or whatever. And so the 
residents who live there lobby and say, no, 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 don't change the zoning because my house is now worth $1.5 million and I bought it for seventy-five grand in 1982. And yep. so I don't want you to build any more homes over here. Thank you very much. And so there's just a problem in that sense. Then there's just the problem of if you put people who are currently homeless into homes, would that really solve the crisis that they are enduring, which is drug abuse and mental illness in a lot of cases? So one thing that is near and dear to my heart and is also near and dear to your heart is some certain vaccination mandates that happened in the past few years. So what was the legal basis for those vaccine mandates? Like what piece of law gave them the power to do those, at least that that was used to do? Wow. You know, I... Here's, it's, it's quite a complicated, it's quite a complicated thing. So the, there was a Joe Biden mandate, if you remember, that was through OSHA. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. this was when, when this was, when first off, when all this was happening, companies came up with whatever policy they wanted and they, Right, and they enforced it on their employees in a crescendo of effect, and people were scrambling on how to react to it. And Joe Biden, through OSHA, implemented his mandate, which said that every employee of certain companies of a what he called a large size. I forget exactly what the size was. I think it was 50 or more. It could have been another size. Had to have a vaccination or test rule mm-hmm. that everyone needed to be vaccinated or tested. And when that went into effect, that really emboldened, I, in my experience, pretty much every large company took that, even if they were reluctant at first, pretty, pretty much every large company took that and ran with it. And it was eventually overturned by the Supreme Court and National Federation of Independent Businesses versus OSHA. But almost no employer, when it was overturned, said, all right, well, we're not going to have this mandate anymore. They all still kept it. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you know, it's not legally required from OSHA, but we still like it. We still think it's right. And we still want to do it. And I don't think that and I am not the foremost expert in the most recent status of this, but I don't think that there was anything after this that decided in any affirmative way that companies can't, can't, can't enforce any of these mandates except for certain first amendment exceptions. And, some people might remember, and I think you remember, that I made a big deal out of a little thread that I created that helped some people in writing their own exemption materials. And it came out of some research that I did that uh, some other Twitter people helped out with. I got a lot of help from the Orthodox Church, which has some of the most helpful materials, um, and some of my own research as well. And it ended up helping a lot of people, but the the law on this was never so 
clear. It was more of a zeitgeist of culture where companies felt like it was something that they had to do. And it became really politically difficult to deal with keeping a job and managing this if you didn't want to fall in line and get vaccinated, as you, as pretty much everyone remembers. Right. And Cece was instrumental in helping me in my vaccine situation. So I was one of the beneficiaries. But my question is, OSHA made this mandate. What is OSHA? Okay, I can Google that really quickly, probably. But is it one of the the three letter agencies of the federal government, I can imagine? Well, no, because it's four letters. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And they are a federal agency that sets forth workplace safety guidelines for a put again, I'm not an expert in this, but it mostly applies to, at least in this case, large employers. And okay. what the court case decided, and I'm going to very briefly summarize it for non-legal podcast purposes, <laughs> is that OSHA is not in the best position to be deciding whether or not a vaccine or test mandate should be required for all employers. That doesn't fall within the scope of OSHA's job to protect workplace safety. That's what the conservative judges decided. The liberal judges had a different opinion, which is that vulnerable workers need protection and that OSHA should be there to protect them. And the way that they protect them is to force everyone to get vaccinated or mandated. That was the liberals' view. The conservatives saw it as this is outside the scope of OSHA. And for that reason, and because thankfully we have a conservative majority, the mandate was crushed. Even though that didn't have a huge effect on changing anything at the time, I think in the long run, it made a difference. Yeah, I agree. So I guess I'm just looking to the future. A similar thing could happen. A four-letter agency could say that this (laughs) law or this mandate is required to protect you know, citizens in the workplace or whatever the case may be. And your only protection as a citizen is for the Supreme Court to strike down that act. Ah, man. Well, I don't know if that would be true because it seems like individual companies, if the culture decides that they need to do X, Y, and Z, that they're going to do X, Y, and Z, regardless of whether it's required or not. True. And employees are going to have some sort of effect on that if they resist or not. I don't think in this case there was much of a material resistance besides a few fringe cases like you and me and some others. Our psychos, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just wonder... um... I totally agree, and I didn't think of it that way, that the OSHA mandate basically emboldened the companies that were already part of the cultural movement. It just gave them an excuse. It didn't need to have the mandate be there. What I am... Yeah, and it was funny, because it certainly emboldened them when it came into effect, but then it was when it was overruled, it had no... It it didn't soften it in any way. So... um, It was like an excuse. They took it for strength. (laughs) Of course. Of course. So then I'm wondering... As the employee, what rights do I have other than my freedom of religion or 
I think it was only freedom of religion that would work. That's what I did. And yeah, my, only but, my first amendment right protects me in the workplace, essentially. Or like your other bill of rights. It, yeah. In this context, that's, that was the case for this. That was, that was the magic bullet. And if you listen to the internal discussions and there were some recorded internal discussions from, I think cabinet members where they, you could actually hear them privately lamenting about the exact strategy that you and I and hundreds of others use saying, well, all they need to do is say these secret magic words and they get the exemption. And they said, yeah, well, but not a lot of people know about that and they'll be afraid to use it anyway. And they said, yeah, you're right. But still, we got to acknowledge it's out there. They were, they were, it's funny, they were actually aware of what some of us were doing and recognized that there was nothing that they could do because of the First Amendment. Um, there, and that was, that was it. You know, it wasn't my body, my choice didn't carry the day. There was no any other slogan or uh, personal belief that carried the day it was a pretty strict adherence to certain special words that you used in your correspondence in the first amendment that put hr for your company in a box that that they would have to just say yes Mm -hmm. and i and I, i don't i don't know whether that would change in the future the one way that they get it around it is if they use certain vaccines that circumvented the first amendment argument magic pill, which I won't go into in detail in this podcast. Um, but there was a vaccine that came around later that made it a little more difficult to use the First Amendment argument. Um, but it's it's sort of a, a moving target, I think, if something like this comes around again, depending on what the vaccine looks like mm-hmm. and what arguments you can make, you know, depending on how it's made and, and what the effects of it are. Yeah. I mean, you're re- never going to see... Do you think you're ever going to see the vaccine people say we were wrong. I haven't seen it happen. Oh, no way. No way. No chance. I mean, people are still, you know, one of the more fascinating um, interactions I had, um, I guess I can say at the office was I was at lunch with someone and we were talking about COVID and obviously I'm a, I'm a lurker. They don't know my status, if you will. And they were talking about COVID vaccines and they said oh well um basically this kid was from business school and the small town nearby none of the quote small town residents wanted to get the vaccine so it was all going to go bad because it was just sitting there so they drove two hours all these business school kids to get the vaccine and they were just talking about it like oh these small town minds and there was actually a kid from Australia there and he was talking about what he went through during COVID and how they all got um, locked in their houses until they got to 90% vaccination rate and then they immediately all got COVID the entire country got COVID within three months of exiting their homes for the first time <laughs> and this other kid sitting there was like well, you know, in the United States, we never could get to that 90% mark. It wasn't even a thing. And by the way, you know, you all got COVID in Australia, but you knew that was going to happen. The vaccine, that's that's <laughs> what you signed up for. You knew you were still going to get it. It just meant that you weren't going to get sick. And I was like, whoa, that was a live memory hole I just saw there. <laughs> that was drinking the Kool-Aid, the craziest thing I've seen. Wow. 
Yeah, there's so many cases of things like that. You know, court people having those exact discussions with each other or email correspondence. Yeah, the kid from Australia was like laughing, but I don't think he he didn't think it was too funny. <laughs> he had a really tough go of it there, I think. Um, it was a little disappointing to see, I think, because I think I always had the perception of Australia as like a little wilder America. Yeah. And then this COVID thing really, um, I'm, I, I know that there are cases of that, but it, it squashed it a little bit because they were about as strict and conforming as you could possibly get overall. Yeah. He said that um, if you were caught in your car, the police would stop you because you were not supposed to leave your house and ask you where you were going. And the only excuses were like to the hospital or to my necessary job. And you were allowed to go outside for one hour a day and work out. And then you had to go back in your house and they were monitoring everyone. And I was just amazed that like people legitimately did that. Do you think that would work in the United States? Do you think that would have worked? I mean, didn't they do stuff like that in California? Weren't they arresting people in California that were surfing by themselves in the ocean? Yes, they were. And they would yeah, uh, I, block off parking lots and take down basketball hoops and fill skating parks with sand. See, I think yeah, people think that we're going to forget this. Park with sand. <laughs> I mean, people did forget it. They're voting for the same people again. I mean, they were. you could not possibly be more wrong. And there's no accountability for it, which we don't need to go into detail about it. But come on. You're right. It's not right. You know, it isn't right, CC, and it keeps me up at night. <laughs> I try not to let it keep me up at night. I have a lot going on, but yeah, it is not right. That one article from six months ago that was about, you know, the pandemic was a difficult time. We all need to let go and forgive and forget. I still think about that article and I'm going to die angry is all I have to say about it. Because nobody else is. And for all those kids that were in high school and middle school for two years, people saying, oh, thank you for your sacrifice. It just makes me so mad when people make fun of the COVID kids that they locked in their houses for two years. And now they're all behind and they're socially inept because you actually aren't supposed to be virtual as a 12 year old. But again, nope. Cece, we can't talk about it too much. I'm building my yeah, or, I mean, I, and I have a cousin who, and yeah, it's not right. And I have a cousin who missed her se entire senior year and her first year of college. Oh, you know, like that, like what, some of the coolest times of your life, right? Gone because of this freak age. out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to end on that note. So let me ask a different question. Would you call yourself a conservative or a libertarian? <laughs> if you asked me when I was in my 20s, it would be libertarian. But after uh, working and starting a family, conservative. <laughs> and I think pretty much everyone that called themselves libertarian, once they go through that, finds themselves similarly conservative. I think you're probably pretty right in that assessment. So since you are a conservative, Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump? I was just talking with one of my very good friends about this five minutes before this podcast, because he has a podcast and he's, he's a well-respected conservative. And I said to him, I'm doing my first podcast. I don't know what to do. And he does podcasts all the time. And he gave me some advice on what to talk about here. And also he told me, you know, Ron may be running. And we talked about that. 
And we lamented, why would he do it? Just why? Like, mm-hmm. Florida is going so good. Everyone loves Florida. Can't you just can't you just keep making Florida great for now and let let Trump do the Trump thing? I just I don't want to see my two favorite guys battle it out right now. That doesn't make me too happy. Um, I w- I'm not calling him a honeypot, and I know Cernovich went nuclear on DeSantis three or four months ago, and then earlier today I saw a favorable tweet of him. I just kind of always liked him. He's he was a lawyer. He was a military guy. He's not a fancy businessman with a ton of assets. So remember, he turned in his tax returns, and I think that he only has like a couple hundred thousand dollars to his name as a governor. Yeah, he sort of has appeal in a way that that Trump just didn't have, although he lacks a lot of the charisma. I'm just not looking forward to seeing those two. Uh, tear each other apart. Don't you remember what Ted Cruz and Trump did to each other? That didn't mm-hmm. feel good, did it? No. No. Yeah, so I'm not looking forward to that happening, and I hope it doesn't happen. I hope Trump's obviously doing it. I think let him do it. I would like to see Ron keep making Florida great and then another cycle, but man, if I have to decide, I don't want to have to decide on this podcast at this minute. <laughs> well, I'm not going to hold it to you. Um, I do find the I used to be so Ron DeSantis, like, so, oh my gosh, he's so elegant. He answers such, so well and so eloquently all of these questions. He makes this uh, reporters look stupid. He's what we need yeah. right now. He's going to be, you know, the perfect juxtaposition against Joe Biden. Um, but he does do some things that come across a little bit annoying. And again, I haven't watched the news. I wa- I read Cerno's tweets. Okay. This is all I know. So, yeah. The whole also don't watch the news. I haven't watched TV news in forever, so I don't know either. I don't have a TV. I don't have cable. I have Twitter. Literally, I just have Twitter, and I watch through Housewives on my computer. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) And and, um, but Ron DeSantis is doing this like tour across the world, apparently, as the governor of Florida. Yeah, apparently he's like going around the world and talking to people, like foreign dignitaries. (laughs) as a pr thing and it's pissing people off because they're like dude you're the governor of florida you're not a global representative yet and so there are things like that where it's a bit of a who told you to do that who authorized that um if i had to choose today with a gun to my head i mean i just want one of them to win i really don't care who it is that's my position (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right on. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I would agree with that completely. It's uh, <laughs> it's not it's not a battle I want to see them have because I, I just know. I like them I like them both the most I think and I think he does a great job. He's one of the only people that I think sets a good standard for conservative activism, and I think we have a lot of conservative thinkers. We have the best thinkers. No one has better thinkers than us. <laughs> and, and we the best meme, the best people, most attractive people, the strongest people. And we have all of that, but I think he's maybe one of the best activists. Mm-hmm. At least that's like active as a public person that we have. And like he's still so young, right? He has so much more of a runway. I yeah. just don't want to. And Trump just nukes people. Like, can Jeb Bush ever come back? Can no. Chris Christie ever come back? Can Marco Rubio ever come back? Like, he nukes people in a way that is indescribable and i just don't want him to do it to ron 
Yeah, it's interesting to think, you know, is the calculus or the decision for Ron DeSantis saying, I either go for this right now and I win, or if I go for it and I lose, I'm done for because he'll ruin me the way he's ruined other <laughs> candidates. Like, is this his one and only shot or he just bides his time and then he can try three or four times um, against other people? It's kind of an interesting question. That's my dad's position. He thinks that they'll both, at the very least, they will both tear each other down so much that they will end up losing, whoever is the nominee. I I don't want to say that I agree with that, but I fear that also. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on. For those who are listening. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> for those who are listening, uh, where would you like to direct them right now? Any plug? Where I'd like to direct them right now. I have no particular plug. Um, just keep hanging out on Twitter and fighting the good fight every day of your life. Get married, make kids, start businesses, do all the right stuff. Retweet to all of that. So we'll leave it here, but thank you again. Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.